Hey there, it's Shamita here. This is the last interview I recorded before going on maternity leave. Starting next week, you're going to hear some great guest hosts filling in for me while I'm away. So until then, enjoy this episode. This is In Conversation from Apple News. I'm Shamita Basu. Today, inside the mind of one of the New Yorker's most recognizable cartoonists. The other night, Roz Chast looked in the mirror and discovered to my horror that I have a metal rod sticking out of my temple. So she pulls out the rod, which was painless, and I examine the hole. And she's totally freaked out by what she sees. It's a third eye. It is not cool. It is not mystical. It is tiny, and it's kind of disgusting. It's gross. And I hate it, but I can't get rid of it, so I decide to ignore it. She just accepts her fate. Yeah, it's like, what am I supposed to do? Like, just sit here on the sofa and, like, freak out about this thing? No, I'll, I don't know, put a Band-Aid over it or something or comb my hair a different way. As you might have figured out by now, this didn't happen in real life. It happened in a dream. Our dreams follow a bizarre kind of logic. And Roz tries to capture some of that weirdness in her latest illustrated book called I Must Be Dreaming. Roz has been a cartoonist for The New Yorker for decades. Her style is instantly recognizable. She draws with these frantic, almost jittery lines. Her cartoons generally find the humor in the everyday anxieties of modern life. I started by asking Roz about her early career as a cartoonist. When she started at The New Yorker in 1978, she was in her early 20s. And at the time, there was only one other woman cartoonist at the magazine. So most of the time, it was what I saw as a room full of, like, old guys. They were probably, like, 40. But in my (laughs) eyes... They felt old to you. They felt old. (laughs) It was very strange. There were so many things that were odd about me that being female was only one of many, many things. I mean, I was the only girl. I was considerably younger. And my work was so different. You know, that was maybe the main thing. I think if they didn't like me, and some of the older guys didn't, it wasn't because I was female. It was because they didn't like my work. Mm -hmm. What was different about your work? Uh, Well, I didn't do the gag line. I uh, drew in panels, and it was very idiosyncratic. It was personal. I didn't want to learn how to be a New Yorker cartoonist. I wanted to learn how to be me. Mm. And I know that sounds probably very conceited, but um, I didn't think I could be. I never planned on being a New Yorker cartoonist. I thought maybe I would work for the Village Voice, and I was starting to sell cartoons to them a little bit. And I was selling cartoons to the National Lampoon. It was a big surprise to me that the New Yorker took a chance on me. Hmm. Hmm. And it's still, you know, gratitude every day, really, for being, you know, Lee Lorenz was the cartoon editor, the, the art editor. I mean, at that point, he did the covers, he did the cartoons, he did the spots. There were no illustrations the way there are today. There was no color inside the magazine. It's interesting that you say... Maybe it was conceited of you to be thinking in that way at the time. But I mean, the other way to put it is it sounds like even at a 
young age and at an early point in your career that you were very sure of what you were about? Um, I think... Did it feel that way at the time? <laughs> I think I kind of... It's one of those things where I've never been good at figuring out what other people wanted from me. I've never been good at really other people, like figuring them out. And Mm. I think this has to do with being an only child, maybe, and spending most of my early years by myself. And to decide to be a New Yorker cartoonist and then studying New Yorker cartoons and trying to learn how to draw or learn how to think in some other way than what I did just seemed way too hard and daunting and pointless. Mm. I didn't think I could do that. You know, the only thing I really could do was draw how I drew and think like I thought and pay attention to what I thought was funny, not try to figure out what somebody else thought was funny. But it's clearly hit. It's uh, it's hit a point with people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Enough people are finding it very relatable and have for, have for many years. Yeah, well, not, knock on wood, you know, because it's, it's still surprising to me because it is so personal, you know. What was your first published cartoon in The New Yorker? It was something called Little Things. And it was, I mean, when I submitted to The New Yorker in April of 1978, I really didn't know how to do this exactly, you know, how many cartoons to submit. Um, I put in about 60 cartoons into a portfolio. I really was not sure what to do. And wow, 60. Six yeah, zero, yeah six, six zero, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I don't had, think a lot of people realize the process, actually, of yeah. trying to get a cartoon accepted by The New Yorker, but it's it's um, pretty daunting. It's I Well, I, that was just what I had. And mm. I mean, I certainly don't submit 60 cartoons a week anymore. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, but, you know, I submit a group. I submit six or eight. Um, most people submit around that number, sometimes 10. But anyway, the first cartoon was this cartoon called Little Things, and it was, out of the 60 cartoons, it was probably the weirdest. It was the most idiosyncratic. It was this uh, kind of these, like, little shapes that I made up and made up these names. And it was the kind of doodling that I do when I'm by myself, and I just want to make myself laugh. There, Or, like, if I were in class or something, and it was, like, very boring, I might doodle this and like pass it to somebody you know just just try to make them laugh or something mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and it really out of all the cartoons the fact that they chose that one i i it's a mystery to me it still is a mystery because it was i think the oddest but when my cartoon started running some of those old guys were not happy and one of them asked lee lorenz um, whether i owed his family money Oh, boy. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know that at the beginning. Lee told me later. But they started to like my stuff. I think it just took them a little little bit of time. Was there ever a time in your life or a period in your life where you struggled to find things funny? Uh, uh, Most of the time, actually. I mean, really? It's this constant sort of feeling that everything is going to be a disaster shortly. Um, dread and, uh, you know, not not funny at all. And then sometimes it seems very funny. So it's like two things at the same time. 
Art school was probably the worst <laughs> in some ways. Uh, I think you're one of many, many artists who's probably said some version of that. Why Why did you think so? Why was oh, it so for you? God, it's just too much, um, too much talking about art and not enough just kind of working, at least mm. for me. Mm-hmm. You know, it also has to do with when I went to school. I was in art school in the 70s, and it was, you know, conceptual art and installation art and performance art and this very serious intellectual, you know, you take a rusty pipe and you lean it up against the wall, and then you write 30 pages about intertextuality or something. And I was completely out of my depth. You know, it was like, oh, my mm-hmm. God, I'm from Brooklyn. I did not. I don't know what these terms mean. I just want to draw. I don't know anything, you know. I'm glad I went because I feel like it did prepare me a little bit more for being a, an artist as your job. But it was definitely, I did not draw cartoons while I was in art school. It was too, um, I felt embarrassed. What were you working on in art school? <laughs> I was a painting major. Mm. My paintings sucked. They were terrible. They were really <laughs> oh, awful. No. So what was it about drawing cartoons that that was calling to you? It is weird how you get called to things, right? I mean, it it's like how did you decide that you wanted to talk to people and ask people questions and interview people and it's somehow that's what pulled you in, you know? Mm-hmm. I'll tell you, I mean for me, literally yeah, to, yeah, how I'd I would like answer to that question. For me it was very much about finding my tribe. Um once I found people in this line of work, once I started to meet people in this line of work, I realized I wanted to be more like them. I wanted to be around them. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be in conversation with them. So that's that was the biggest sign to me. I want to be around this. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, that's that's definitely how I felt the first day I went to The New Yorker and when I went down that hallway to meet Lee Lorenz. And this is going to sound bats, but... Walking down that hallway in the old building, it was really kind of crummy. It was not slick at all. Um, it was a little bit rundown looking, which I like. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, the light fixtures were the same that they had in my public school, my grade school, PS217 in Brooklyn. And I thought, oh, this is sort of familiar in this weird way. <laughs> Might have had like similar doorknobs, too. It's like something about the, I don't know, but it's different from people. <laughs> doorknobs people oh same <laughs> no but you're saying you felt uh you felt like a, a kinship a kinship yeah 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 in many ways new yorker cartoons have transcended the magazine itself you can find them hanging on people's walls in coffee table books and calendars my mind always reaches for an episode of Seinfeld from 1998, where Elaine sees a cartoon in The New Yorker, and she just doesn't get it. She doesn't understand what's so funny about it. And she ultimately goes to The New Yorker office Animals to ask the editor the to email. explain the joke. Well, Ms. Ben, is, uh, cartoons are like gossamer, and uh, one doesn't dissect gossamer. <laughs> Well, you don't have to dissect it. If you could just tell me why this is supposed to be funny. Oh, it's merely a commentary on contemporary mores. (laughs) But what is the comment? It's a slice of life. No, it isn't. A pun? I don't think so. Wolfstein? 
That's not a word. You have no idea what this means, do you? No. no. Then why did you print it? I like the kitty. One thing that I feel like that episode kind of perpetuated is this idea that New Yorker cartoons are are funny, but also a little bit maybe like inaccessible or there needs to be something very, very high level about them. Um, <laughs> do, do you think that that's I don't know. Do you think that 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 did a service to people's understanding of New Yorker cartoons <laughs> or would you take issue with that? I, well, I think that. You know, with with any kind of cartoons or jokes, it's going to hit people differently. And some people are going to get it and some people aren't. That was a funny episode. I remember that. (laughs) Uh, But I will tell you that my father used to keep this cartoon in his wallet. It was not one of mine. It was from the Saturday Review, which was an old magazine that my parents subscribed to, in addition to The New Yorker and all these other places, things. Um, But it was a cartoon of a guy on the couch at his shrinks. And the gag line was, I feel inferior because I don't understand the cartoons in The New Yorker. (laughs) And my father loved this cartoon. And he would just, you know, show it to people at the drop of a hat. And I just actually heard from a friend recently, he confessed something to me, that he was at, some book event, and he met my parents. And my parents came up to him, and, you know, they were they were proud, but they didn't, you know, they were New Yorker subscribers. They knew it was like something to get a cartoon in The New Yorker, but they really, I don't think, understood most of my stuff. They understood, like, you know, Borscht Belt kind of jokes. A guy goes to the doctor, blah, 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 you know, punchline. So my parents come up to this guy, um, he was actually in publishing, and I guess they clocked that. And they had this little envelope with my cartoons in it that they'd clipped out in the magazine. And they said to him, could you tell us why these are funny? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's that's a great story. Yeah, yeah. It, it was like, yeah, that's my parents. That that's, was That's my parents. That's definitely them. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's very, very funny. Um, in your book, you write that cartoon work can sometimes feel very dreamish. Yes. Can you say more about that? What do you mean by that? What's the connection you're seeing? Um, I think it's kind of a, you're letting your thoughts kind of flow in this way. And it's maybe kind of an unusual thing to do for a job where, you know, I go into my studio and I'm sitting at my desk and uh, facing what this old time cartoonist used to call the blazing island of white. (laughs) And, uh, you know, just kind of going through some cartoon ideas that I've scrawled on pieces of paper throughout the week and just basically sitting and thinking. In fact, I wrote about in this book about once my kid was watching me from the door of the studio and I was just kind of like sitting and staring at this piece of paper. And he said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm thinking, you know, because that's really what I spend a lot of time doing just. And so in that way, it's like dreaming. It's like letting your thoughts kind of go from one thing to another and seeing whether a cartoon comes up. 
Mm. daydreaming daydreaming <laughs> it's like say. daydreaming yeah. but yeah. but with a little bit more focus maybe i mean and murakami mm-hmm. wrote about that also with writing that for him writing was like dreaming but with more i mean i have the quote in here um because i thought it was so here it is um Haruki Murakami once said, for me, writing a novel is like having a dream. Writing a novel lets me intentionally dream while I'm awake. And then I wrote, uh, working on my weekly group of cartoons for The New Yorker sometimes feels dreamish, especially when it's going well. I sit at my drawing table for hours, thinking, doodling, jotting down ideas that might become cartoons on a nearby scrap of paper. At the end of the workday, the scraps containing these half-baked ideas go into my idea box. When I look at them later, some ideas gel into cartoons, but many do not. Salad bar from 1066. Turkey and therapy. Sometimes it's just a single word. Podiatrist. Periodically, I toss a bunch in the garbage. So it sounds like that's part of your process is intentionally trying to engage this dreamy part of your awake state. But in a way, your sleep state is offering this up all the time. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Well, yeah. I, the the dream state, there's no uh, judgment part. There's nothing. There's mm-hmm. no part that's saying, well, this is a terrible idea. This is just useless. This is, you know, you're wasting your time. Why don't you at least clean the house? You know, it's not it's it's right. not that. <laughs> Can I ask you to describe one of the cartoons in your book? Uh, sure. I thought maybe I'd ask you to to tell us what was on page 21. This okay. one's called Nubbins. Oh, yeah. This feels like such a classic like relatable classic dream scenario. Um, that just okay. makes no sense. Yes, yes, but it makes dream sense. Um, yes. and I guess it's a sort of a little bit of a lucid dream and a lucid dream is a dream where you're aware that you're dreaming and you can sort of change the the direction. You can change the action in the dream at will mm. and continuing your dream, not waking up. But this dream was called Nubbins. And uh, my kid was sitting on my lap and I noticed that his fingers were nubbins. And he was little at the time, maybe three. And his fingers sort of shrank into his hand so that he had palms but where the fingers should be were just these little, like, bumps. And then I looked at my hands, this is in the dream, and my fingers were also nubbins, you know, just these palms with these little bumps. And then suddenly I realized I was dreaming, and I could make our fingers lengthen or nubify at will. Like, bloop, there come the fingers. Bloop, (laughs) like, now they're nubbins again. And I said to my kid, I said, ha ha, we have sleepy hands. (laughs) (laughs) it's just it's totally absurd (laughs) yeah it's totally absurd uh but somewhere in that dream i was aware that because it was a dream i had the power to to do this yeah yeah so tell me why this real dream you had about finger nubbins made it into this book like what what made you select certain dreams for this really for funniness or, or there's a few in there that aren't funny or fu- things that got to me. And I think in some ways that's why I do anything at all. Like something for me to write something up or draw it up, it has to reach me in some way, uh, seem either funny or it's like there's a couple of dreams that I don't think are terribly funny, but they just 
reached me. You know, they got to me. And I felt like I don't want to forget it, you know. So sometimes for me, writing and drawing, I think, is a way of not forgetting. Mm-hmm. And when you say reach me, what 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 is it? What is the imprint that it's leaving that you're trying to capture? Well, if it's reaching me in a funny way, it just seems funny. But there's other things that are just, I have a dream in here where my mother, who is deceased and who I had a complicated relationship with, not particularly good. Mm-hmm. She called me and I knew that she was dead and she was weeping on the other end of the phone. And it was so, it woke me up. It was upsetting. Mm. But I included it because it reached me, you know, it got to me. Like I woke up and it was like, oh my God. I can see that your parents show up in your dreams. Yeah, they do. They do. What do you think you're working out with them in your dreams? Oh, probably the stuff that, you know, we all are working out, trying to work out with our parents. I mean, ways in which you hoped that, you know, your relationship with them had been better. And I have children of my own, you know, so I know how important my relationship is with them. And I wonder, you know, did it ever occur to them that, like, they would want to have a relationship with me as an adult because Mm. certainly as, you know, when they were little, it wasn't on my mind all the time, but I did consider the fact that I didn't want to not have a relationship with them as an adult. You know, Um, it was like, you know, please don't let me blow it so bad that, you know, they don't want to be friends with me as Mm. when they're grownups, you know. Which is a different sort of thing to be so acutely aware of when your kids are young. Yeah. I'm raising a, I'm raising a someday adult. <laughs> yeah. How old is your... You have one? I don't have children yet, oh, but oh. I'm, I am pregnant with my first. <gasps> yeah. Exciting. It's very exciting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I'm really excited. That's really... Well, your life's going to change. <laughs> so I hear, yeah. and I'm really... I'm, like, really thrilled for it. <laughs> I can't yeah. tell you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, can I ask you to describe another one of your... Yeah, sure. Uh, one of the pages in the book, yeah, one yeah. of the dreams? Oh, it's so hard to choose one. I, I mean, I know which one I would choose next, but I would love to ask you to choose any one you would like to. Okay. I know which one um, I always... Uh, let me see if I can find it. Here it is. Here it is. It's page 58. Okay. Um, this dream I had, it was... Um, To save humanity, there was a water shortage on Earth, but I had a genetic defect where I made tons of saliva. I kept people alive by drooling into their mouths. Everyone was grossed out, but it was either take my drool or die. Um, And I have this drawing of this kid lying in a bed and his mouth is open and I'm just kind of like drooling into his mouth. It's a little bit gross, but you know, that's how, that's what happened. That's what the circumstance is called for. That's exactly. <laughs> in exactly. that particular dream. <laughs> yes, yes. And I I saved humanity um, with my drool. Um, but, but this other dream, this was really sort of funny. Um, it was a very dreamlike whole circumstance. I have a, cele- uh, a chapter in the book about celebrity dreams. And um, so I had this dream about Danny DeVito. I dreamed I was married to Danny DeVito. I like Danny DeVito. He's hilarious, but he's not someone I think about very often. In my dream, he lay with his head in my lap, 
gazing up at me with adoration. And that's the drawing. I'm sitting on this like wooden bench and he's lying on my lap and he's looking up and all these hearts are coming out of his head. And it's I'm not in love with him, but it's nice to be adored. So maybe this will work out. So <laughs> so this was, I don't know, like a month ago or so. Um, I was uh, going to an interview and I think it was uh, at WNYC. And the person who was being interviewed before me was Danny DeVito. No way. Yes. And uh, <laughs> the people that he was with and the people that I was with, somehow he became aware of the fact he was made aware that he was in my book. And, um, of course, I knew who he was. I wasn't sure if he knew who I was. But, you know, then we had the book and showed him the dream. And he really liked it. And he gave me this big hug. He's like, comes up to, like, my chin. He is quite short. And and we hugged. And then he signed my book, um, <laughs> Oh So Nice Love Danny DeVito. And... It's. It was like this is so dreamlike. This entire episode. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was really sweet. It was really wonderful. So what a yeah. weird and unexpected way for your dream to just reach out into the real world and shape something. Yes, absolutely. I love that. <gasps> Ross, can I ask you about something? I mean, first of all, I I chuckled at lots of things in this book. Oh, good. I feel like this book was such a nice. Um, such a nice insight into your brain. But I have to say, the other thing that really gave me a lot of insight into your brain recently was this New York Times home tour that oh. you did. And I was so um, I was floored by the headline, which maybe was OK because it was quoting you. The headline was, is Roz Chast terrible at decorating? I am. I am. Uh, well, if you really do feel like you're terrible at decorating, what what made you agree to open your doors for a home tour? I, because I don't, I think decorating is different from, decorating is something I don't know how to do, but I do know how to hang up things that, and display things that I love. And you certainly and, have. That's something that you definitely take yes. away from the photos of your home. Yeah. Chock yeah. full of things. Lots and lots and lots of things. And I, I love buying or trading art with people. A lot of cartoonists. I've gotten a lot of incredible cartoons, original cartoons, you know, trading with people. And I love to show those off to people. I just recently got a couple of uh, original Helen Hokanson cartoons from somebody. I collect these scarves, the silk scarves that cartoonists, a lot of New Yorker cartoonists did in the 40s and 50s, mm -hmm. uh, like, like merch. And... So I don't know, decorating, when I think of decorating, I think of um, like rooms where like there's things sort of, I don't know, like a, a bowl with like those wicker balls in it. So, <laughs> you know, you know what I'm talking about? Some kind of benign, non-functional object. Yeah, like yeah. a non-functional yeah. object. And I'm really bad at that. I'm really bad. Or like a coffee table. That is like perfect. It has like no chips or nicks or like, you know, from when your kids were little and like did something like really stupid. Um, you know, it's like this perfect piece of furniture and the person can tell you, well, this is like, you know, a Mies van der Rohe. And I, you know, and I'm great. it's great. It's like, I'm, but I don't have anything like that. Yeah, your, your home tour was clearly not that. But it's, no. what's really clear, though, is that you surround yourself with visual reminders of things that you like just love and appreciate 
Yes. Yes. And I and that's why I, I was very happy to have somebody over because it's like, look at this Charles Adams scarf. Can yeah. you believe this? Yeah. It's just the greatest thing you've ever, you know, I've ever seen. <laughs> Can I tell you the thing that caught my eye that there were just yeah. zero questions about? I need to know. Yeah, yeah. In your dining area, you have yeah. uh, you have some shelves that are just full of cans of yes. foods. They look like various food goods. Do you collect cans of foods? Well, okay. For a while, this was, you know, probably like 20 years ago. I had this sort of, I think it was partly to make grocery shopping not so boring, I would look for it and I had like it was like a game sort of it was um a collection and a game uh <laughs> and it was to look for labels of things where I just really loved the label and most of them mm. were like maybe it was a company that like canned peas but they hadn't changed the label like forever and then I would take it home and I'd like dump out the peas or whatever but the rule was that I couldn't like buy a vintage can at like a collectible store, antique store. That would that was like cheating, right? That was totally cheating. Uh-huh. But then, you know, about fifteen years ago, the times did come and they photographed the cans. And then I got some cans from people, and some of them were so cool that I thought, well, I can't throw this can out. It's like it just sort of says Cress. And then there's this great painting of like some kind of cress on it and I you know, or canned peaches and then there's like a football player, like a painting of a football player with like a canned peach and how can I throw that out? That's like too great. So there's a couple of like exceptions. But then there were things I know, I feel like I'm blathering, but I, I'm so excited. So I have these cans. That was, but not, not, there's not that. I mean, maybe I have like 30. <laughs> I guess that's a lot. <laughs> I was going to say that. That sounds like yeah, a lot. I was going to say not so many, but maybe there's 30. Maybe there's 25. I don't know. <laughs> it almost sounds like, I mean, there's enough absurd things that happen in waking life. Yes. <laughs> that, um, you don't have to work that hard to manufacture very strange dream scenarios. No, not, not at all. Not at all. And it does make grocery shopping more fun, <laughs> you know, if you're like looking for something like this. I'm sure. I'm sure. This was so enjoyable. I really enjoyed speaking with you. Well, you too. And I'm very excited about your next phase of life. Oh, thank you. Thank yes. you. Yes. I appreciate it. <laughs> Roz Chast's book, I Must Be Dreaming, is out now. And if you'd like to see some of her cartoons, check out our show notes page. This is my last episode of In Conversation for the next few months while I'm on maternity leave. Next week, David Green, a former host of NPR's Morning Edition, will be taking over the host chair with more guest hosts to come later this year. I'm so excited to listen along with you. I'll be back again soon. 